The sermon this morning comes from John eleven twenty eight through 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, had you been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? It's a fair question to ask. What, what is the point of this story? And Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He, he gives us the answer. He, he opens the story with the answer, and he closes the story with the answer. Verse 4 after he had heard that Lazarus was ill. He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So before Jesus performs this miracle, he says, let me tell you what this is about. This is about revealing the glory of God. This is about revealing my glory. And then if we don't quite get it, he says it again at the end of the story. In verse 40, when he says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The glory of God is at the center of this miraculous story. It's all about the glory of God. You say, what is that? Well, in short, the glory of God is his, his greatness, his brightness, his splendor, his majesty, his amazingness. And when Disney built their new concert hall in Los Angeles, this was years ago, as only Disney does, they do it right and they do it big. And they built this concert hall that was this landmark creation. It was a, a building full of shimmering stainless steel, a glorious structure. So glorious that the condominiums next to it thought it was a little too glorious because at midday, when the sun would shine on this building, it would reflect off the stainless steel and straight into their patios and rooms. 
And the temperature in these condos would instantly rise by like 15 degrees. In fact, in the LA Times, in the article, they interviewed one of the women that lived on the fourth floor. And she said, literally, we would be sitting out on our patio, enjoying a nice afternoon on the patio. And at midday, at a certain time, the reflection would come. We couldn't see anything. It would immediately heat up. We would have to go inside, close our doors, draw the shades, turn the air conditioner on, and it would still get hot in our condo. Now, of course, Disney doesn't like bad press, right? So what do they do? They came up with a solution, and that is they hung these huge, large mesh blankets over that part of the building. Listen, the reflective light was so bright and so brilliant that it absolutely altered the life of these people living there. Their schedules were disrupted by it. When they could go on their patio was disrupted by it. It was just so bright. And that pales in comparison to the glory of God. The glory of God is so bright, so radiant, so majestic that it is life-altering. It's disruptive. And it's intended to be disrupted. But so often, we have blankets, don't we? Blankets in front of our eyes that reduce the glare, that reduce the brightness. And those blankets come in the form of sin and idolatry and sickness and death and grief and sorrow. That's exactly where Mary and Martha and her friends find themselves. They find themselves in the place of an illness that led to death and they're full of so much grief and sorrow that the glory of God is, is veiled, it's covered. They can't see it. And by the time that Jesus arrives in Bethany, by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And so Jesus walks in on what was typical in that time, a week-long funeral, a week-long of, of grieving, of weeping, of sorrow that they were experiencing. And so Mary goes out to meet Jesus. She falls at his feet, and we see in verse 32, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, what do we do with that? Well, Mary is, obviously, she falls at Jesus' feet. And they're friends, right? Jesus loved Lazarus, loved Mary, loved Martha. She falls at his feet and she says, Lord, if you would have been here, she recognizes that Jesus has some degree of power that he could have healed Lazarus if he had gotten there earlier. He had the power to heal sickness. And so she falls at his feet. And at this point in the story, you go, well, this, is, this sounds about normal. You've got Mary and Martha, friends, weeping over the death of a loved one. Uh, you've got Mary seeing Jesus as some sort of man who has power to heal. And yet there's something deeply wrong at this point in the story. How do we know that? Look at verse 33. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now, what does that mean? We're gonna explore it more later, but that word deeply moved in the original language that the New Testament was written in, which is Greek, it means to get angry. It means to be indignant. The word troubled means to be disturbed. Jesus was literally 
angry and disturbed. You say, why? Isn't it normal that we weep when we lose a loved one? Absolutely. No, he wasn't disturbed and angry that they were weeping. It was why they were weeping. That there was a, there was a despair that had set in here. There was a hopeless weeping. You know, we're called to grieve, but to grieve with hope, the scriptures say. But there was no hope. This was a despair. It was a darkness. It was a weeping that was born out of unbelief. That's what Jesus was angry and troubled over, was this darkness that had set in, that their unbelief had had covered their eyes to this brilliant, life-altering glory of God that brings hope in the darkest situations. You've been there. You've been there when, when, when a season of life comes where the dark gets so dark and the grief and sorrow is so palpable and so deep that you don't feel like any light can come in. It's a grief and a sorrow that runs so deep that, that despair starts to set in. You find yourselves maybe a bit like Mary. You know, Mary says, she really plays what, what is the, the what if game or the if only game. If only Jesus, you would have been there. And we do that. If, if, if something would have happened different, if this would have happened, if I would have done that, if Jesus wouldn't have let me get to this place, I wouldn't be in this darkness, but now it's settled in. And there's this veil over even a, just a glimpse of the light, the brilliance, the glory of God. It's just dark. The drapes are pulled. There's a Psalm that reflects this. It's Psalm 88. You know, there's 150 Psalms in the Bible. And they reflect just about every human emotion that you can imagine. That's why they're beautiful. That's why we need them. Every psalm, even if it's one that's expressing trouble and darkness and feeling abandoned, whatever it may be, it always has a turn up to, but Lord, you're light, or Lord, you bring salvation. Psalm 88 is the one psalm in the Bible that has no turn. It is dark, and it stays dark. You say, why? Because that is the human experience sometimes. Even for believers, even for those that are in Christ, there are times functionally where the darkness hits and the sorrow and the grief is so deep that it feels like there is no light and no glimpse of the glory of God. You feel abandoned, you feel alone, you feel troubled. And the question becomes, what does it look like for the brilliant, radiant glory of God to penetrate into that situation? What does it look like? And what we see here is between the, the veiling of glory, which is, is, is Mary and Martha and her friends in their unbelief and their despair with the, the glory of God veiled, between the veiling of glory and the unveiling of glory, we're going to see that when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, you have in the middle Jesus' response to their weeping. How does Jesus respond to their deep sorrow and their deep grief and their deep weeping? And you're gonna see he responds in two ways. Verses 33 and 38 say he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled, which we looked at. Verse 35 says he wept. Now on the surface, you take all of those and you, you can tend to lump them together into one and say that's just kind of one emotional response. No, there are two very different responses there. As I said, that word greatly troubled or, or deeply moved in the original means to get angry. Greatly troubled means to be disturbed. 
It says that Jesus was angry and disturbed. And then in verse 35, it says he wept. You've got anger and you've got weeping side by side. Now those seem inconsistent, right? They seem incompatible. I mean, to to be angry towards someone, it seems inconsistent to be loving towards that person at the same time. And yet anger, at least a certain type of anger, is absolutely consistent with love. It was, uh, it was New Year's Eve, and my daughter and her friend were out on our street riding their bike, bikes, and my son was out playing as well. And uh, my daughter and her friend start riding down from the cul-de-sac towards our house, and they're, they're going at a pretty good clip. And my son, for reasons I still don't know why, jumps out in front of her friend, in front of the bike. And she swerves and misses him. So then she jumps in front of my daughter's bike with his arms out as if he's gonna catch her and hug her and hug the bike at the same time. Except my daughter didn't have enough time to swerve. So she plows him over. She runs him over. And he, and he falls, he flies backwards on his back and he starts crying, wailing, weeping. Now, how did I respond? Let me tell you how I didn't respond. Hey, buddy, I am so sorry you got hurt. Anytime that you choose to go in front of a moving bike, I am here for you. I will hug you, I will kiss you, I will love you. So listen to me, you go out and jump in front of a moving bike anytime you want, son, and I'm here for you. No, no, I was full of anger and I was full of grief. I ran up to him and I said, what are you doing? You don't jump in front of a moving bike. Why'd you do that? And he's still crying. What's the next thing I did? I picked him up. Then I hugged him. I said, where's it hurt, buddy? And I comforted him. You see, when you're in the midst of deep grief and deep sorrow, compassion alone is not enough to bring comfort. Because compassion does nothing about that which is causing your grief and sorrow. Nor is outrage and anger enough to bring comfort. Because outrage and anger, though it will move towards action to remove that which caused the, the, the grief and sorrow, doesn't bring comfort or compassion into your grief and sorrow. You know, we live in a world, in general, that struggles with a God of anger or a God of wrath. God of compassion, God of love, yes. God of anger, God of wrath, no. It's incredibly inconsistent. And if that's where you're at, I say this with all respect, but it's very inconsistent because if you're that person, you get angry at injustice. You get outraged at injustice. See, the reality is we need a God of anger and a God of love, righteous anger and love. We need a God of both because only a God of righteous anger and compassionate love can bring comfort in the midst of grief and sorrow. 
Because his anger and his outrage does something about that which is causing your grief and sorrow. And his love enters in in compassion to comfort you in the midst of the grief and sorrow. And that's exactly what we see happening here is that you've got Jesus Christ, the righteous one, right? Bringing righteous anger and love to this situation. And it's this kind of glory of Jesus, the full glory of Jesus that brings comfort in the midst of grief and sorrow. You see, it's, it's, it's Jesus' outrage and anger over what? What is he angry over? Yes, certainly the unbelief, but he's angry over the sickness and the death that's wreaking havoc on his world and generating so much sorrow that you and I are all aware of that happens. And so we see here the full glory of Jesus that enters into this situation to bring comfort, to bring comfort and to bring compassion. And ultimately his purpose is to remove the veil so that they can see the glory of God. So we've got the, the glory veiled. We've had Jesus responding. Question becomes, how does Jesus remove the veil? How does he actually remove the veil from their eyes? How is his glory unveiled and revealed? So he arrives at Lazarus' tomb. He tells them to take away the stone and look at verse 39. Martha says, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Now, earlier, Martha had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the one who had come into the world. She had confessed that Jesus was the Christ, but she still was holding on to the, the, the Jewish belief at the time that there would be a general resurrection at the end of time. So she believes Jesus is the Christ, but she has this idea that there's a general resurrection at the end of time. And Jesus says, Martha, what did I tell you? That if you believed, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And so in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And out comes Lazarus. Linen strips around his body, grave clothes on. Now listen, you've got to put yourself in this situation. Martha, Mary, the Jews had this idea of a general resurrection that was coming out of the prophets, that there would be a new heavens and a new earth, a new world. They, they believed that, but that was at the end of time is when all this would happen. So they had this category that that happens here and Jesus comes into their grief and sorrow right into the depth of it and raises Lazarus from the grave. And out he comes. And what we see here, and, and what is the, the, the beautiful imagery that happens here, when you put together those two, Martha and Mary and the Jews believe that happens at the end of time. Jesus does it right in the midst of time to say, that future has just burst into your presence. That future, that glorious future of God, the new heavens and the new earth, resurrection, bodies coming out of the grave. Hey, Martha, it's bursting into your present right now, right before your eyes. See, she had the resurrection as, a, as an event, as a doctrine, and Jesus had already said to her, I am the resurrection. I am the life. It's a person. 
But there's another observation to make here. When Lazarus gets raised from the dead, he still has a body that's susceptible to disease and death. Lazarus is going to die again. Mary and Martha may be weeping again at some point. Right? He was just brought back from the dead, but he's, he and she and they are still in a fallen and broken world. But what had happened is that God had given him a vision of glory, a vision of that glorious future now, right in the midst of their brokenness, right in the midst of their grief and sorrow, that that vision had come alive. It's what Paul speaks of in Romans 8. Verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us and the glory that has already been revealed to us in Jesus. Glory now, glory revealed. I want you to imagine that you have two women, same age, same socioeconomic status, same education. And you hire them, both of them, to do the same job. And that is to take part A and put it in slot B and to hand that off to somebody and to do that over and over and over eight hours a day. Those two women are in the same working conditions, same lighting, same ventilation. They get the same breaks. They get the same vacation. Everything is exactly the same except for one thing. You tell the first woman, at the end of the year, I will pay you $30,000. You tell the second woman, at the end of the year, I will pay you $30 million. The first woman, pretty soon, is saying to the second woman, isn't this tedious? Isn't this so incredibly boring? Why are we doing this? Aren't you ready to quit? And the second woman says, this is great. I love this. I'm whistling along as I work. Now, what's going on there? You have two human beings experiencing the identical circumstances in radically different ways. Now, what this illustration is not saying is that a good income is all you need or that money's gonna make you happy. No, what it does say is that what you believe about your future will control how you experience your present. That what you believe about the future and your future will control how you experience the present. And what we see in this story of the resurrection or the raising of Lazarus for Mary and Martha and those gathered is that that glorious future comes crashing into the present for them. That they have a vision of the future that Jesus brings into the present that bursts into their life and responds with, with hope. So what's the future we're to believe that controls how we do experience our present? Well, you'll notice that the way that John records what happens here of Lazarus' raising from the dead is very similar to another resurrection. Stone rolled away, linen cloths, grave clothes. The difference with Jesus' resurrection is that the grave clothes aren't on him when he walks out. He has them folded up neatly inside the tomb. But what Jesus is doing is pointing forward. You know, what he does here for Mary and Martha is what he does for you and me. In verse 34, he says to them, where have you laid him? Where have you laid Lazarus? And what do they say? Come and see. See, they say, come and see, Jesus. Come and see. 
Come to our deepest sorrow, our place of deepest grief. Come to this very dark place that has us in despair. And Jesus says in response, come and see. Come and see as I lead you through the sorrow to the place where I dwell, in light, in love, in resurrection glory. Jesus says, come and see, because that future I'm gonna bring right before your eyes to give you hope. Come and see. Resurrection is not just a doctrine. It's not just a future fact. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. It's a person who brings resurrection glory into your present, into your deepest sorrow, into your deepest grief. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. We are hope-based creatures. And Jesus brings that glorious future and that glorious hope that we look to, and he brings it into the present in himself by the Holy Spirit. Shortly after we got married, Kim and I were on vacation with her family at the beach. And uh, Kim's uncle, or an uncle of sorts, had brought one of those... Uh, Many catamarans, sailboats, had it on a little trailer. He rolled it down to the beach so that throughout the day we could take it out and have fun with it. So Kim's brother comes up to me and says, hey, Keith, you want to go out in the catamaran? I said, do you know how to sail it? He said, yes. I said, all right, let's go. Kim was standing pretty close by. Kim knows her brother. And immediately, she didn't express it at the time, but her anxiety level started to peak. We had just gotten married. Off we go, we get on this catamaran, we're heading out. And the plan was to go out about a quarter mile, turn around and come back. We get on, strong tailwind, sail full. We're going, we're even starting to peak up on one hull. It was beautiful. We get out about a quarter mile and that's where the wheel started to come off. So my brother, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm just laying on this thing. My brother-in-law starts to, he starts to move the boom and pull the ropes and the, the, the sail starts flopping and the boom's swinging back and forth and I'm just, I'm ducking for like five, 10 minutes and we're sitting there, not moving anywhere. The sharks begin to circle. Not really, no, no. <laughs> we're sitting there, but we're not moving. can't get the sail right. And, and for 10 minutes, it's pulling ropes. And, and I'm, I'm just like, I'm watching. Like, David, I don't know what's going on here. Just get me back to my new wife, please. We just got married. And after about 10 minutes, we kind of pick our eyes up and we look and we've moved quite a bit. Now, not towards shore, but we had moved down the coast quite a bit because there was a current that was pushing us there's a current that was moving us. We weren't sitting still in the water. We were moving because of this current. And there are seasons in life where that tailwind that maybe for you has made life easy and made life comfortable and made life pretty happy, that tailwind stops blowing. And life just seems to come to a screeching halt. Things get difficult almost in every phase of life. And you feel like, not just did I lose the tailwind, but every, now you feel like you almost have a headwind pushing against you. 
And it's a lonely place to be. And it's a place of sorrow. And it's a place of grief. It's a place of frustration when this happens. And you may say to Jesus, Jesus, come and see. Come and see this grief and sorrow. Come and see. I'm sitting still. Where's the tailwind? This is hard. This is difficult. And then Jesus says, in response, come and see. As I bring you through your sorrow to the current of resurrection glory, that no tailwind, that no headwind can stop. That there is a resurrection glory of current that is moving you. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, says, let me just get your, let me dip your hand in the water so that you can see that resurrection glory is here. Let me get your, let me take this glorious future that you know about, that you think is not giving you any help right now, and let me, let me bring that in for you before your eyes so you can see it and be filled with this hope, Peter says, is inexpressible, this joy that's inexpressible. Because that future that I bring in, Jesus says, that future is one of no death, no pain, no crying, no sin, no grief, no sorrow. And because I rose from the dead, it is sure and it is guaranteed and that victory has been won. And that current, that resurrection current is moving. And it's moving in your life. And Jesus says, come and see. Let me show it to you and let me unveil my glory to give you hope and joy. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we so desperately on a day-to-day -day basis need to see a glimpse of your glory. And our sin and, and, and our grief and our sorrow and, and sickness and illness and death can so quickly throw a blanket and a veil over our eyes. And Father, we pray that as Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead right before Mary and Martha's eyes, that you today, through this story, would take the veil off our eyes, that we would see your glory, your brightness, your splendor, your majesty, that we would see your glorious future that by your Holy Spirit is brought into our presence that comes bursting in and crashing in to the places of our deepest darkness and our deepest sorrow and our deepest regret and our deepest grief. Father, we agree with you that we are hope-based creatures and we thank you for the promise, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life, that resurrection is a person today. Yes, that guarantees a glorious future, but that is a person today. So would you reveal your glory to us? Would you give us a glimpse of it so that we could say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 that our present sufferings, our present grief, our present sorrow, our present regrets, our present sin is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed and to the glory that already has been revealed in your son, Jesus.
As we close in worship, would you fill our hearts so that our voices could sing to you with great gratitude and great joy? And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.